0: We shall now turn to the Word of God, to the portion read, John's Gospel, chapter 4. We may read now from verse 21, John, chapter 4, verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Uh, As we continue our consideration of first century Christianity, what the early New Testament church was like, uh, how the uh, early Christians, what they believed, and how they conducted themselves the gospel that the apostles preached following the preaching and teaching of the Saviour. And uh, they were to go, as we noted last Lord's Day, into all the world to preach the gospel, which was the gospel of the kingdom. And as I said, it's seldom that we hear the gospel referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. And yet that's the gospel that Jesus preached, and that is the gospel that the apostles preached, centering on the king himself. Now, you will see here that there is a conversation between the Savior and this woman of Samaria. Now, we're told at the beginning of the chapter in verse 4, verse 3, to get the connection, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, we've already Uh, noted how important it was that when the Savior sent the twelve out at the first they were not to go near Samaria they were not to enter the cities of Samaria they were to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and their ministry was confined and here we have the Savior himself going through Samaria and he must needs go through because he had a mission to Samaria. And uh, he has this mission because he will meet this woman and through her and the, the conversation between them, he will teach us and also the apostles who are to teach the world. Remember how we noted out of all the disciples that he had, he chose twelve that they should be with him, listening to him, observing him, learning from him, so that they would be in a position as his witnesses to teach the nations to observe all things whatsoever he commanded. Now here we have the Savior disclosing who he is to this Samaritan woman. And here is what he says in verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now, why does he say this? Because this Samaritan woman had the same expectation as the Samaritans had of the Jews themselves. They were expecting a Messiah. You understand that as we read here, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And even to this very day in the, in the land of Israel itself, the Orthodox Jews Orthodox Jews take little to do with the Samaritans who are a minority. The Samaritans, by the way, they still worship this, to this day in Mount Gerizim. They still offer sacrifices. They still have a priesthood. They still have the Pentateuch, which they believe is more accurate even than the Jewish Pentateuch, and so on. But the the Samaritans were despised as not being pure Hebrews or pure Israelites without going into all the history just now. Jesus speaks to this woman to the amazement of the disciples. We're told, verse 27, upon this came his disciples and marveled. Well, why would they not speak to the Samaritans? And Jesus does it, And he's speaking to a Samaritan woman, and uh, they dare not even ask him, why are you speaking to this woman? It seemed they were just amazed but they knew in themselves from what they'd already learned of Jesus. He must have a real good purpose in what he's doing. But why did he say, I that speak unto thee am he. Because she had said, verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. He will put everything right. The Jews were expecting their Messiah. The Samaritans were expecting the Messiah as well. And uh, this Messiah, they expected, although he would reign, and uh, the Jews expected he would reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. This woman is the faith to believe when he comes, he will sort all the problems out. There'll be no more disagreements. We will learn from him exactly where we should worship. There'll be no more disputes. And so, you see, when we listen to the Savior... Saying to the woman, I that speak unto thee am he. I'm putting everything right just now. I'm clarifying things. What I've just said to you about worship is actually the very mind of God on it. What do we read? Verse 21, he said, Unto the woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, Jesus did not mean there would be no longer any worship in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is this, worship will no longer be confined to Jerusalem, or Mount Gerizim, or anywhere else. And so, it will be the end of centralized worship. That's for Jesus, that's the real principle that he's laying down. The day is already here when there will be no more centralized worship. It will be at an end. And uh, because Jesus says, well, I am the Messiah that's speaking, I'm putting things right now. I'm telling you right now what God requires, what is expected regarding his worship. Now, we have already said the apostles were to be with Jesus, learning from him, and uh, They were to be his witnesses in the same gospel according to John chapter 15. Jesus makes it clear to the apostles what the responsibility would be. In John 15, uh, we read in verse 26, as he uh, gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit, the comforter to come, verse 26, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he will make things even clearer to you about me. Through the Holy Spirit, your understanding, your knowledge, of me, the Savior, the Redeemer, will even become clearer. And verse 27, ye also shall bear witness, because, and we remember how we stressed this, because ye have been with me from the beginning. The reason you are apostles the reason you are witnesses is because of what you've seen, because of what you've heard. Remember last Lord's Day how important it is, the opening words of Luke's Gospel, where Luke gives his reason for writing this very Gospel. Verse 1 of Luke 1, just to remind ourselves of it. For as much as many, have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. And as I pointed out, there there are many, many dozens of Jewish records written in the first century, and the second century, the first century, uh, of what the church was supposed to believe. You have all the various gospels that exist today, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter, the gospel of uh, Mary Magdalene and you have other epistles, a multitude of writings. Some are spurious, some are downright deceitful, some are fictitious, but because Luke knows this is happening, and Theophilus has perhaps even read some of these and perhaps he's confused and what, well, where is the truth then? So what does Luke say? Even as they delivered them unto us from the beginning, which were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. What I'm writing is not Second-hand, accepting in this, the ones that I've consulted, from whom I have gleaned my information, are actually eyewitnesses. They've seen the Savior. They've heard him. As John says in his first epistle, we have handled him. We have seen him. We have handled him. And this is why Luke is writing so that Theophilus knows the things that are really believed among them as witnessed and proven to be the truth. Now, Jesus sends out these apostles as witnesses. They're able to say, wherever they go, Jesus said, on the Sermon in the Mount, they listened to that. Ye have heard it has been said, but I say unto you, over and over again. So they were actually witnesses. They could say, This is what Jesus taught. We heard him with our own eyes, our ears. We saw him. We were in his presence. We even asked him on, on occasions to explain some of his parables to us so that we were not mistaken. Or we wouldn't interpret them wrongly. And Jesus explained his parables to us. So now, here we are. And we may ask ourselves, well, what way did the early church worship? You look around on this day throughout the professing church and what a variety Of forms of worship and types of worship so-called and anyone outside looking in in the church that don't go don't attend the public worship they must wonder well it obviously mustn't matter very much you can just worship God any way you like you go here and you go there and it's all different Some places, they don't have any musical accompaniment. Other places, they have a band, they have an orchestra. There's all this variety. It mustn't really matter. God's not much bothered about how you worship him. You can basically just do whatever you want, and it's acceptable with God. Jesus said to this woman, I that speak unto thee am he. So what I have told you about worship is correct. The teaching that I'm giving you is correct. This is what is required. Now, look in verse 23 what he says. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers Note that. The true worshipers. What does that indicate? That there are false worshipers. There is worship that is not true. There is worship that is false. And this is what Jesus says, When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But then, and it's something that we should uh, remember, nowhere during the ministry of the Savior, nor throughout the ministry of the apostles, will you find any liturgy, written or unwritten. You won't. We don't have a service recorded from beginning to end that we have a form and we have an order doesn't exist and you see we can become taken up with the externals to the point where we think to ourselves one body says well this is how God should be worshipped the way we do it and because that lot don't do it the way we do it they're in error They should conform to the way we do it. And they should have exactly the same number of singings, the same number of prayers, the same number of readings, and they should have the same form because we've got it right. But Jesus never left any liturgy. Jesus never decreed any form. Jesus, when he was alive, When he was with his disciples, and they were with him, and they had to be with him, he worshipped in the synagogue. He went to the temple, but he worshipped Sabbath by Sabbath in the synagogue. And when he was leaving his disciples, he warned them, the day will come when they will put you out of the synagogue. But you'll be in the synagogue until they put you out. They will excommunicate you from the synagogue. But until they do, you continue worshipping in the synagogue, carrying on with the form of the worship that is established there. But, while Jesus warns, and we shall look at some of the incidents, Jesus warns against false worship and being worship, what does he say about those who draw near with their lips, but their hearts are far from him? He says, "In vain, in vain do they worship me. The worship isn't worship. They've got the external form. They say the right things, but what's the problem? Their heart." is far from me. There is no true worship unless the heart has come to God. That's very searching, isn't it? That should make us think. This people draweth nigh unto me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me in vain do they worship me. So we have to ask ourselves honestly, well, where is my heart? Because if I haven't drawn near to God with my heart, God is responding to me and saying, in vain do you worship me? Your worship is empty. Your worship is unreal. What Jesus does, however, is this, he's speaking, he's clarifying things to this woman and through the ministry to her, to you and I, about true worship and the true worshipers. Now that should automatically interest every one of us. Wouldn't we be saying to... I want to be a true worshipper. I haven't come here today to play games. I haven't come here to be entertained. I have come here because I want to be among the true worshippers of God. What does Jesus then do? He concentrates upon essentials. That's what he does. He doesn't give us a liturgy. He doesn't establish a form that every service should be like this and so on. He doesn't do that. But he concentrates upon essentials. And what does he say? God is a spirit, and that's where you have to begin. Until we know who God is and what he is, how on earth will we ever worship him? How will we know what we're worshiping? How will we know how to worship? God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Note that word again. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now listen. In the previous chapter of this gospel, the Savior is in conversation with Nicodemus. And what does he tell Nicodemus? Ye must be born again. And except you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Well, here the Savior saying to this woman, God is a spirit and they that worship Him must, they must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because we're told in the verse 21, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But, verse 23, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. He seeketh true worship, and he seeketh such to worship him as worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, when we come then to verse 24, they must worship him in spirit and in truth. That indicates clearly that unless the worship is in spirit and in truth, it is vain worship. It is empty worship. It's not acceptable worship. It's not the worship that God the Father seeketh. Now, there are in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the Tanakh, there are three different words that are translated worship. One of them refers to homage, paying homage, paying homage to a superior, treating with respect, with regard. Another means to prostrate, to prostrate oneself before a superior with the understanding I am inferior, I owe it to one who is superior. I owe my honor, my respect, my devotion, my worship. But there is another word that's used, but it's translated differently in occasions. Avada. And it is sometimes translated work. Very often it is translated service. And you can find this repeatedly in uh, the Pentateuch and throughout the Old Testament that when, for example, Baal was served. It's the word Avadaah Meaning worship, and uh, again it is translated service when they, when the uh, Israelites were in Egypt, and they had to render hard service to the Egyptians. That same word is translated worship on occasions, so let us understand what we 're talking about. When we're talking about the worship of God. And if we don't serve God, we don't worship God. If we're not obedient in our service to God, all our words are empty. If we spend the six days of the week serving self, ignoring God, when we come to the courts of His house on the Lord's day, and we come with pious words, and we think we're being accepted by God, it is not true. Worship is the service that we give to God. That's involved in it. That's an important element in true worship. Jesus, when he's speaking to this woman, he hasn 't died yet he hasn 't declared from the cross it is finished, and so the sacrificial system is still uh, in, uh, still being uh, practiced and when Jesus is speaking to this woman, she has, and among the Samaritans, she has their form of worship and priesthood and sacrifices the same as Jesus. Uh, acknowledges among the Jews and at Jerusalem in particular that's still the way that things are the sacrifices are still being offered the law is still being read the priesthood still exists that's the form of worship now Jesus says the hour is coming it's now actually here when this will be no more there will be no more priesthood There'll be no more altar. There'll be no more sacrifices. And eventually there will be no more temple. There will be no more material temple. Because the temple of the Lord will be spiritual, as Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians. In the sixth chapter of his first epistle, what does he say? Ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are the Lord's And what does he further teach your body is the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord your body now when Jesus went into the temple and he was disgusted with What was taking place there? And he overturned the tables of the money changers and he took a whip of small cords and he drove them out and he said, Take these things. Hence, make not my house a den of thieves as you've done. It's to be the house of prayer to all nations. You have stolen God's house from him. You have taken it and you have turned it into a marketplace. And that's exactly what's happened in a lot of churches and particularly these mega churches in this day. They become marketing centers uh, to make millions and billions in profit. That's not what the Savior sent the apostles out to do. But you see, Jesus is teaching this woman, through her, the apostles, through the apostles' as church, what true worship is. And it is spiritual. The externals have gone. It's finished. It is finished. Now, the Samaritans to this day don't believe that the Messiah has come, so they're still offering sacrifices. But Jesus says, this is true worship. And the Father seeketh this worship. So that's the only worship you can render to him. But let us understand this. The worship of God that the Father seeks and desires is in competition With another. Turn with me just now to the fourth chapter of Mark, of Matthew's Gospel. And there we're all familiar with the narrative that records the encounter that the Savior had with the devil in the wilderness. And notice what happens. The devil When he comes, he's called the tempter, and that's important to note that. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 3, when the tempter. When the tempter. Why is he called the tempter, do you think? It's because that's what he does, he tempts. And when he comes to the church, he comes to tempt." When he came to the Savior, he didn't come to learn. When he came to the Savior, he didn't come to worship him. He came to tempt him. And when the devil comes, he may appear as an angel of light. But he still comes to tempt. And he's very good at tempting. He's been at it for a long time. He has a lot of experience. And he came to tempt and he said, To Jesus, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then, when the devil hears the Savior quoting, it is written. Well, he's not put off. He doesn't think like many a person. Have you ever met someone? They don't go to church. They're ungodly. They don't read the Bible. They hate religion. And as soon as you say, well, the Bible says, I don't want to hear any more. No, that's the end of the conversation. I don't, I'm not religious. Don't want to hear anything. ...about the Bible. Don't want to hear anything about God. You know what I'm talking about. As soon as the word of God is mentioned, end of conversation. Well, the devil isn't put off. There's not a subject he can't talk about. He's a master at conversation. And this is what he does then, verse 5. Then the devil taketh them up into the holy city and setteth him in a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him if thou be the son of God cast thyself down for it is written well wouldn't you think isn't this a wonderful conversation it's all based in the bible it's a very scriptured conversation it must be very edifying he shall it is written he shall give his Angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Well, the devil isn't easily put off. And I tell you, that's something we need to learn. You don't put him off very easily. We are to resist the devil to put him to flight. but we understand the degree of resistance that can be necessary. The devil comes back again. Where's he? The devil taketh them up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give unto thee, listen, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The Father seeketh, Those who will worship in spirit and in truth, he seeks their worship. But there is someone else seeking worship. He craves worship. He saith unto Jesus, If thou wilt fall down and worship me, that worship could be very profitable you could gain the whole nations of the world. That's what I offer. If you worship me, there are benefits. Have you ever heard people say, well, when I go to church, I don't get anything. There's no point in me going I don't, f- I find the services boring. Ministry isn't very interesting. I don't get anything. Well, you see, when we come to the worship of God, it isn't so much to get as to give. What did Jesus teach this woman? The Father seeketh Worship, the offering of worship, the praise, the adoration, the worship of God. You come to give worship. And that should be more important to us than anything else. But the devil's worship is profitable because he gives. To his worshippers. And he said to the Savior, All you have to do is prostrate yourself and worship me and I will give you the nations and the kingdoms. It's so important to me to be worshipped. What does he say to the Savior? All these things will I give thee if thou wilt Fall down and worship me. I so want and desire worship. I'll give up everything that is committed to me. I'll give it all up. I so want worship. I'd rather have worship than ruling the nations and the kingdoms of the world. I want worship. Do you think that the one who tempted the Savior in the wilderness has changed any? Do you think he doesn't crave worship today? Do you think he doesn't want on the Lord's day, congregations of his worshipers? Isn't it interesting, you go back to the book of Daniel and there you have in the in the book of Daniel, you have the incident: the three Hebrew children, and they were, of course, it was a great Nebuchadnezzar set up a great image in the, in the land, and they, all the peoples, were to bow down and worship at set times this great image. And when they refused, then they were threatened. But, it's very interesting to see what happened when this pagan heathen worship was being conducted. When you think of what goes on in some of these mega churches, where there's all these groups of ragged and sometimes totally immorally dressed, bands and orchestras and whatever else, and congregations are swaying and swinging to the beat of the music, repeating over and over and over the lyrics, which are just simply useless mantras. Now what's it like? Listen to what the king said to these three Hebrew children, verse 15 of Daniel 3. But if you be ready, that at what time you hear, listen, the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image. Does it sound familiar? Do you think there's anything like that happens today in many places supposed to be centers of divine worship this is what accompanied heathen worship idolatry and the three Hebrew children have no part in it because God is a spirit and they that worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. And if there is anything that we could say with confidence about the worship that was set up by Nebuchadnezzar and that was requiring that all throughout the empire, including the three Hebrew children, would bow down and worship, it can be with confidence stated It was satanic worship. It was the devil's worship. And I believe that we have a judgment on the professing church in this generation. What do we read in the first chapter of Romans? What does God do when a generation turns its back upon him and his truth? Romans chapter 1, verse 24, we read, Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. What do they do? They worship the creature. And what does what happens in these great assemblies, thousands assembling in these great mega churches, supposedly? You don't hear the call to open the Bible or exposition, because there aren't any. You don't hear them uh, calling for worship in truth because it is a fan club. And a great multitude have come because they're fans of the great band with the knees out of their trousers and their worn-out t-shirts and whatever else. In the presence of God, the angels veil their faces. They veal their feet with reverence. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And these come brazenly, why? Because they don't have the spirit of worship, but they are ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's what's happening. What did, what does Paul write who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who's worshipped it's the creature it's all to please the creature it's all to please the congregation it's all to make them feel good and it's like almost like an addiction a drug addiction they need to get back again They need to hear the band. They need to feel the atmosphere. They need their spirits to be moved again and stirred up. This is not the worship of God. And when Jesus here speaks to this woman, as I said, he concentrates on the essentials. What is necessary? Now it is pointless for us to point at others and say, well, I don't don't consider what they're doing to be worship at all. And probably rightly so. But what we have to do is come back to ourselves. Well, what about me today? Have I come to really worship God? Am I just attending? Am I just present in the body? Where is my heart? Is my heart away from God? Or is it with God? The Father seeketh such to worship him. Lord's day by Lord's day, When the Father is seeking worship, where are we? Do we understand that absence from the public worship of God is actually a sin? We try to excuse ourselves. And we try to find an excuse for not being there. Over and over again, that's what people do. And I'm not talking about legitimate reasons for absence, which we all experience at times. But I'm talking about the regular, perpetual absence or lack of attendance the Father seeketh worship. That's what he's waiting for. Where are we? When those who are out at the beach are touring the country are sitting at home in front of the television are slumbering in their beds is that what the Father seeks? Is that what God seeks? Do we understand the seriousness of what the Savior was actually teaching this woman. And he says to this woman, Believe me. Now what does it mean to believe me? When the Philippian jailer asked that question, what must I do to be saved? What was he told? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And people get the idea in their heads all that really means is I just believe Jesus existed. Or I just believe Jesus is the son of God. Or I believe that Jesus died on the cross and he died to atone for sin. Jesus said to this woman believe me believe what I'm telling you and teaching you the instruction that I'm giving you about worship. That is part of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe what he tells me about worship because he is the object of my worship. He's the object of my praise, my order, my, um, adoration. He's my joy. And when we come to the house of God, by the way, we ought to be joyful. Do you know there's no place in God's house for miserable worshippers? Very interesting. We have the psalm that we sometimes sing. Psalm 122, what does the Psalmist say? I joyed when did the house of God go up, they said to me. I joyed. I was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. But you know something? Go back with me to the prophecy of Isaiah. And there in chapter 56, God is promising to do something really important. In chapter 56, he's speaking about the outcasts, the eunuchs, and the strangers, those who normally have no place in his house. And what does God promise he's going to do in the future? Verse uh, 3, to get the connection, Isaiah 56, verse 3, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speaks, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him, and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and listen and make them joyful make them joyful in my house of prayer that's what God's grace does it produces a happy joyful people and God's house is the house of prayer but what does he say I will make him joyful. He will find joy in being in the house of God. He will be so delighted that he's received by me, that he's accepted by God. He has an experience of the grace of God and he's joyful. When we come to the house of God, Do we bring joy into it? Do we bring joy with us? Do we find it's a joyful place to be? I will make him joyful. This is a joy that God produces. It's a spiritual joy. I will make him joyful in the house of prayer. This is the kind of worship that the Savior, when he sent the disciples out to the world to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded, he made commandments regarding worship, and you and I have to obey them. But we must leave it there. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God we thank thee for the ministry of thy beloved son in this world. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God but that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we rejoice that there were twelve men chosen to be witnesses of the word, speaking, and teaching, and instructing, and commanding, and we thank thee that they began that great ministry of turning the world upside down, teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and bringing men under the power of the word and spirit to be true worshipers. Oh, make us, we pray, to be true worshipers. Pardon us now and accept us for Christ's sake. Amen.